VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Will Kelleher and you're listening to our special series examining just what it takes to win the Rugby World Cup in the company of those who have been there and done it. We'll take you from 1987 to 2019 through the eyes of great world champions ahead of the 10th World Cup in France this autumn. We'll hear their memories and stories, anecdotes and insights, all with the goal of answering one simple but devilish question. How do you win the World Cup? So join us on a rugby journey to whet your appetite for France with Legends of the Game. This time on How to Win the World Cup, we begin right back where it started with the first ever World Cup winners, New Zealand. In 1985, the International Rugby Football Board finally vote through a proposal to begin a World Cup, and two years later, Australia and New Zealand team up to host it. In 1987, Whitney Houston wants to dance with somebody, Rick Astley is never going to give you up, and a family called the Simpsons welcome us to Springfield for the first time. Rugby is still eight years away from turning professional, but New Zealand's All Blacks hardly look like amateurs. The Kiwis blast through the tournament, smashing Scotland, Wales and France, to lift the World Cup at Eden Park. One of the first men to get his hands on the trophy was Sean Fitzpatrick, the legendary All Blacks hooker. So, from the Times and the Sunday Times, this is a Ruck special. How to win the World Cup with Sean Fitzpatrick. Okay, Sean, what a delight it is to start our rip round the last nine World Cups with you talk about 1987 thanks so much for joining us now we're going to ask all of our guests one question um through the special series to kick off so without further ado how do you win the world cup sean fitzpatrick how do you win the world cup yeah uh, i think times have changed a bit since 87 in terms of you know in 87 we didn't no one really knew what a world cup was uh, it was about winning every game But I I suppose in reflection, uh, we had a team where everyone in their positions were pretty good at what they did. And we had a bit of depth also. Although in those days we only allowed 26 players. I look at that World Cup final and any one of those 26 could have probably started and there wouldn't have been much of a drop-off in the performance of the team. So I think depth in your squad is pretty important. 
And, you know, we wanted to be the first team in the world to win a World Cup. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ever. And, well, and that was our sort of our main sort of catch cry, really. Well, we'll try and find a, an answer by the end of our chat, but why don't we lay the context for our, for our listeners? So, Sean, talk us through the, the rugby scene in the 80s then. Take us back. Lots of tours. No Tri-Nations yet down south, but suddenly there's a World Cup, a properly global competition to get stuck into. What was the, the scene like for you guys in, at that time? New Zealand rugby in sort of the, the mid-80s was in a bit of uh, distress in terms of there's a lot of unrest uh, in terms of the, the Cavaliers. We had a Cavaliers tour in 1986 to South Africa where we had the whole all-black team that went to the Cavaliers were all banned for two matches uh, and it gave a lot of us young kids uh, an opportunity to get into the All Blacks. So in 87 and 86, we lost to Australia. So then we went away to France at the end of the year and we, we lost our last game to the French in Nantes, the Battle of Nantes. Mm. And I suppose then it was, a, you know, Brian Lahore was our coach and, and he decided to, to have a bit of a changing of the guard, really, in 87. A lot of new kids came into the team. And we had to win back the fans because they'd sort of gone off the All Blacks a bit, believe it or not. And I think the opening game at the World Cup and at Eden Park was a reflection of that when we only had sort of 13,000 people turned up to support us. So it was a, a time to, to change the, the attitude of, of the team and, and also of, of the public. So we, we took the All Blacks to New Zealand, which was a, was a great lot of fun. Yeah, so so that Cavaliers tour, just for listeners that might not remember, obviously South Africa were in isolation, sporting isolation due to apartheid, but some of you guys made the decision to go to that tour, and that obviously caused a massive stink, didn't it? So as you say, you tried yeah, to win sort them of back. Divided the divided the country really. Mm. You know, it was a, a follow-on from the eighty-one tour to New Zealand, where you know the government said, you know, sport is sport and politics is politics, so you do what you like. You know, the South Africans came to New Zealand and. In 85, the tour was cancelled. So in 86, they had a rebel tour. So thankfully, that's all that's all changed now. And uh, we were allowed back in there officially in 1992. So tell us about the, the prep then. Because as you say, you, you trained around the country, schools and towns to reconnect with the public in New Zealand. So what do you remember of those preparation times? Because obviously at that point, you're all amateur players. So did you have to kind of quit your jobs and go train in all these different places around the country? No, not really. There wasn't a lot of preparation. I think we had one trial uh, up in Northland. The Probables played the Possibles, uh, I think, 10 days before the team was named. Well, sorry, before we, we assembled on a Wednesday. So there was very little preparation. There was no fitness camps. Um, it was up to the individual. and We all worked. I was a builder. So I was on a building site getting fit, basically. And we had the trial after the trial into the after-match function under the stand as we all waited and they named the 26 players that were going to the World Cup uh, straight after the game. And we assembled the following Wednesday to prepare for our game on the Saturday against Italy. So very little preparation. And for us as All Blacks in those days, it was about the next game. Winning, winning the next game was, was the most important thing. And as I said, Brian Lahore said to us, you know, we have the opportunity to be the first team to win the inaugural World Cup, and, and that was it. We had to win six games, and, and that was basically our preparation and, you know, the introduction of some young young players. Take us into that scene underneath the stands. I mean, 
lots of squads have been announced for this World Cup and down in New Zealand they had Richie McCaw and a big unveiling of the 33 men going to the World Cup this year but that sounds yeah. like so low-key doesn't it what were you feeling when you were standing under yeah. the stands just standing under the stand and you know some some of the guys missed out you know which is very very sad but I was was like 22 years old and I, I honestly the the captain was a guy called Andy Dalton you know he was 12 years older than me and to be in the squad these I grew up you know watching watching the, the, the likes of Andy Dalton and and to be named in a team with him, I was just just so relieved to to be in the team. And and then looking at the players that missed out, the Hicker Reeds of the world, I felt felt very honoured, really excited. And 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 that that was it really. And then the next morning, I think we we woke up, and before we we left Northland and Wangarei, we we signed a hundred rugby balls, which we'd we'd never ever done anything like that before. You know, there was no signing of jerseys because you couldn't you couldn't buy a replica jersey in those days because wow. you know that was just the way way we did it. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about the whole World Cup thing because it had been an initiative that rugby had tried to get going for a while, but that there are a few in the northern hemisphere, particularly, who were against it. Um, clearly, football, cricket, rugby league had all had World Cups for many years, but never rugby union. Was it something you thought that the sport was crying out for at the time, or did you not really think about it? Not so much World Cups. I think New Zealand was was really pushing for the game to go professional, which we we saw as as something that was needed for the sustainability of the game, really, um, and to make it a better product. You know, the Rugby World Cup was, I suppose, the start of that uh, that process. And as I said, we, we didn't really think too much about a Rugby World Cup. You know, we played Scotland in the quarterfinal. We played Wales in the pool matches. We played Italy. And that was just, it was just a, honestly, honestly, it was just another game for us that, that we, we had to win. Was there any talk, you mentioned before, that about that thing of, like, if it's the first World Cup, we might as well be the first ones to win it. And it's this almost ultimate chance to prove you're the best in the world, isn't it? To, to win a World Cup. I think if to, yeah to win a World Cup and, and that's you know for us we had Australia in our sights because they in '86 they were an outstanding team and that was a, a massive game coming up we thought uh, the French did us a nice favour in beating them in the semi final but you know, we we were touring New Zealand which had never been done before mm. you know, we'd never done a, a haka in New Zealand before because we never never ever performed a haka at home so Buck Shelford basically said to us, if you want to, you know, we're touring New Zealand, so let's perform the haka. But if we're going to perform the haka, we have to, to learn all about it. So we literally sat down and, and Buck took us through what was the meaning of the haka and we had to do it properly. All those little things, you know, we, we in uh, our coach, Brian Lahore, uh, was a farmer from the wire wrapper. And, you know, we went and went to his, his local pub and, the night that we thought we were going to Christchurch to prepare for the quarterfinal, he said to us, well, we're not going to Christchurch, we're staying in Eka Tahuna, <laughs> and you're all going to be billeted with different families uh, for a couple of nights, <laughs> which, which, was, which was amazing. And if I, just, I, can't, I can't see that happening today, but you know, you know, he was staying on a farms. You know, I was with Richard Lowe, you know, staying with a, a lovely family who, who just thought their dreams had all come true. <laughs> What do you remember of the, the fact they must have been a bit surprised that a couple of All Blacks knocking on the door and say, "Can we have a bed for the night?" Well, we didn't actually knock on the door. We we were we were thought we were heading to the airport in Wellington after our quarterfinal against Argentina, 
Uh, sorry, our, our last pool game. And we were heading to Christchurch for our quarterfinal against uh, against the Scots. And BJ said, well, we're going over to have lunch at my local pub in Ekatahuna. And we turned up at the pub and there, there was all these families and these trucks and utes outside with dogs barking, sheep in the back of them, bales of hay everywhere. And we walked into the pub and it was full of all these families. <laughs> so we thought, oh, this is great. We'll have a few beers and then we'll head off to Christchurch. And that's when uh, Brian got up and said, well, we're not going to Christchurch tonight. You're staying in Ekatahuna. And it was, it was absolutely amazing. I, I look back at it with such fond memories and the joy that it brought the families. But honestly, for us, it was, was such a, a great thing to do. And once again, trying to take the game back to New Zealand to get them behind us. Yeah, that's amazing. That It, it sounds like something that, I don't know, people who have gone on rugby tours overseas who listening to this, or that's the sort of thing that prep school boys do overseas, isn't it? Yeah, it's like exactly, go and stay exactly. with the family, learn about the culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's no, amazing. So talk us about, the, we, we, we've mentioned the fact that it was the amateur era, but professionalism is kind of creeping in and eight years away. And I think the European players who came down south were maybe a little bit surprised at how commercialised maybe it was all becoming. And I think Steinlager sponsored the kicking tees and you guys were on billboards and stuff like that. Did it feel for you like it was becoming a big deal, this tournament? Um, I remember I remember Andy Dalton, our captain. Uh, and a, a few other people from up north were a bit surprised to see him driving on the billboards on a on a quad bike. He was a, <laughs> he was a farmer and uh, he was advertising a, whatever the quad bike brand was or the Yamaha, the Yamaha or Kawasaki or something. And I and uh, there was a few rumblings about that. The game has been professional in New Zealand for, for years. But to be honest, we all had jobs. You know, we got leave without pay. Yeah, sure. So I, I think Steinlager were involved in those days. But, you know, as players, we you know maybe got a, a tray of beer occasionally, but no, nothing else. It was just... As it is today, and the, the guys, you know, although they get paid today, you know, the pride you get out of wearing the black jersey meant everything to us. And in those days also, we only played sort of seven internationals a year and we went on tours. Uh, so, you know, six, a six-match tour it was for us and the money was irrelevant. And, you know, we wanted to, to make sure that, you know, we, we improved the, the all-black jersey. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So looking at the games itself, in sort of a, well, in any context, you blasted through the tournament, really. Like, there were no no real tight games, which is quite rare in a World Cup, looking no. at all the other ones. So from, from the matches, what particularly stands out for you? Other, We'll get to the final in a second, but from the pool stages, the quarter, the semi-final, which ones really stick in the memory all these years on? I think, obviously, the opening game of the World Cup was, you know, against Italy, was that was that was quite special. To play, to play Fiji, I remember playing Fiji down in, down in, in Christchurch uh, in the pool games, and it really, you could just feel there was something brewing. That mm-hmm. we, you know, the, the John Kerwin try against Italy sort of set it off. Um, Michael Jones, no one had really seen him before, but he sort of changed the face of what number sevens in, in the world did. You know, Buck Shelford, you know, such a great warrior, great leader of men. Um, and as I said, everyone just, just did their jobs. The Warwick Taylors, the Craig Greens, the John Gallagher's, Grant Fox, David Kirk. That was all sort of interesting. And then, you know, I, Andy Dalton injured his hamstring in the, on the Wednesday before the first game. And we were doing fitness training on the Wednesday before the first game, which just seemed, seems bizarre. And, and unfortunately, Andy pulled a hamstring. And I can still remember Brian coming to my room. He said, well, Andy's, Andy's out for a couple of weeks. So you're going to be, be the hooker. And we're not going to bring another hooker into the squad. And if we have an injury, if you get injured, uh, we'll use Steve McDowell, our loose head prop, right. to cover hooker. And Steve had, I think Steve had had one club game as a hooker, never <laughs> throwing the ball in. But that was just the way it was in those days. You know, to go through those pool games. And then we got to the, the quarterfinal and Andy was actually fit. And they said, no, we've, we've done so well with the squad we've got, the team we've got, we're going to leave, leave you in for the quarterfinal. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a bloody honour. Mm. And in that game against the Scots, we, we saw them as a real threat. They've always been a bit of a, a tough nut to crack for us, the, the Scots. And, and that game was no exception. You know, there was a, just, it was a tough, tough game. Although we won by 20-odd points, it was still a really physical, hard game. And then I, I remember going to Ballymore to play our semi-final against the Welsh. And it was, it was really strange. We're playing Wales and Brisbane, which was probably something that really stood out for me, a, a difference, what the World Cup was doing is you know putting us in Australia playing Wales, so that was a bit bizarre. And that that game there, we we just played a blinder again, and the team was just coming together nicely. And then I can still remember whether it was that day or the next day, we watched Australia all together play France, and for some reason we we did not want to play Australia mm. after what they'd done to us in '86. And uh, thankfully, Blanco scored that wonderful try in the corner. And I still remember Tommy, my nemesis, trying to get to him, pushing him out. And, and the All Blacks, we all actually cheered uh, that they scored. And then through to the final. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to put the context on that Wales game, 49-6 in the semi-final. That's incredible, especially when it was four points for a try as well. That was, you're not going to see that in the modern era. Yeah, we, we scored some. We scored it. We played a style of rugby. It was, it was quite un-New Zealand to play that sort of fluid running game, which... I don't know if, if Brian Lahore, if he had devised that, or it was just the calibre of players we had. Uh, you know, the John Kerwins, 
you know, John Gallagher was just out of the blue, became one of our great All Blacks, literally overnight. Mm. You know, a policeman, a policeman from Wellington that had come down from England uh, to have a bit of an OE and play for Wellington, and then he's he's playing in a in a World Cup. So a lot of different players, and we're very lucky as as you know a lot of World Cup winning teams are. Uh, we had no injuries, yeah. uh, and if we did have an injury, we had we had really good backup. But other than Andy, we had no no injuries. Yeah. So so let's get on to the final then. Particularly for you as an Aucklander going to Eden Park, back at home, your hometown, home ground. That must have been incredibly special, despite the fact that there had never been a World Cup final before. You must have felt the sense of occasion. Yeah, we were nervous. You know, the the, the anticipation of playing the French and the last time we played the French we had lost in 86 so that was on the back of our minds and they had a they had an outstanding team a really good looking team and they played a very similar game to us um, but yeah we were nervous it was a capacity crowd luckily it was played on a Saturday and not a Sunday there was a big banner uh, from a Michael Jones fan and had uh, thank God the finals on Saturday, not Sunday. Michael Jones fan because Michael didn't play on Sundays. Yeah, um, devout Christian. But yeah. I just it was a most beautiful day. Yeah, and Eden Park was a lot different in those days. A lot of open terraces, open stands, uh, but a real sense of occasion. And you know, World Rugby did a, an amazing job to get it to that stage. Yeah, absolutely. So of the match itself, again, it probably felt tighter than it was, but twenty nine nine, pretty convincing yeah. victory, but. Was there a moment maybe where you thought, I think we're going to do this? Or was it nip and tuck for you guys, even though the scoreline might not have been? Um, yeah, we, had to, you know, we had to play well. Uh, I, you know, Sadly for the French, I think they played their final as the case of many World Cups as mm. we've seen. Uh, the French, I think, played their final seven days earlier against Australia. And to get back to where they were again was going to be difficult. And you know, we scored you know, a couple of times in the first half that you know, sort of really put the screws on them. And and once again we we played played really well and and didn't make too many mistakes, yeah. Um, and and no injuries. Yeah, absolutely. So the emotions of winning it. Obviously, we've had iconic World Cup final moments over the years, but that was the first one. Did it did it hit home what you'd done, or because it was the first one, it felt a little bit different? You just achieved what you wanted to do, or was it this great outpouring of emotion that I happens think, for if, other teams? Yeah, I think at the, as, as I said at the start, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, it was about winning the next game, and and I think the probably the emotion was relief that we'd won the tournament, and New Zealand loved it. So you know, they the All Blacks, you know, were expected to win in New Zealand, and to beat the French was no was no no change. We just we just had to win that game, and then we could enjoy enjoy Sunday, and then back to work on Monday. Uh, I was going to say. Nowadays, parties, drinking sessions, parades, knighthoods, everything else. But was that as low-key as it got? Back to the building site as on Monday. As low-key as it got. I don't think we even had a parade, if I, if I think back. I don't think we had a parade up, up Queen Street or anything. <laughs> um, I think it was just job done. Thank you very much. The 26 view and the, the two coaches or the three coaches and the one physio, one doctor. Thank you very much. Now, off to work and uh, you're going to play Australia. In th- I think we played Australia in about three weeks' time for a Bledisloe <laughs> Cup. And that was it. Done no. done job. Now, you know, get back to you, what you've been doing. Did you get a firm handshake on the building site on Monday or a, a little, I don't know, did the boss come and say, <laughs> well done, mate, or something? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they, in those days, I think we're back training for Auckland. Or, no, sorry, club rugby. 
we're back training down at University at Merton Road in Glen Innes on Tuesday night under lights, I think. That's how it was. Because we had uh, at University, we had four All Blacks. Uh, we had wow. John Drake, myself, Foxy and David Kirk all came out of the University Club and we hadn't won the Gallagher Shield for a number of years. So we thought we needed one more international. So Gavin Hastings stayed on and played for University and 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 understandably we won the won the trophy that year also. Yeah, uh, for the club competition in Auckland. One of the great university teams of all time, surely with five legends yeah, in there. It was amazing. So did you get you, you would have got a medal and things like that? Would you have you still got it? Was it was it a bit of a piece of tin or was it quite a nice one? No, it was just a yeah, a little. I, I think a little downstairs actually, just a, a you know a medal. Saying World Cup winner, nineteen eighty seven, which is quite quite special. I've still got the still got my jersey uh, from that game, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Did you get any sort of other gifts from New Zealand rugby? I remember for things like Lions tours and stuff of, of in that sort of era, there'd there'd be like a, a blazer for all the lads going on tour or something like that, or you'd get a little thing to sew onto your pocket. Was there any any little uh, trinkets no, from New Zealand no, rugby? Nothing, nothing like that. I think we might have got a silver tray, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of beers, but no, I don't think we got anything special. You know, I think just just being an All Black was was so special. You know, we if you play a Test match for the All Blacks, you get a special tie. But no, nothing nothing that I can remember, yeah. <laughs> which was great. We didn't we didn't expect anything in those days. No. You, don't, you don't expect anything. You yeah, you got a pair of boots from Adidas, and uh, and that, and that was it. But that was the way it was, and we loved it. I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, absolutely. Lifetime of memories. We're still talking about it now, which is amazing. So, I mean, and the nice thing also is that we don't, we don't, we've never had a reunion of the '87 team. Okay. We have all black reunions, uh, so we're no more special than the '88 team or the 1963 team. Uh, we just have a we have a reunion every year for all blacks, and if you're available, you you turn up. But no, there's no there's no song dance about the '87 team. Yeah, yeah. Did you still find it amazing? Like, obviously, you didn't have the context of what the World Cup would become at the time, but did you find it extraordinary, really, that the All Blacks took so long to win another one? 24 years, didn't it, to 2011 to get get the yeah. next one? I don't think we really sort of got our head around it in terms of, which is understandable, that in terms of the pre- preparation, the cycle, the four-year cycle, you know, Graham Henry losing in 07, I think that really taught them how to prepare for a World Cup in terms of the development of players through that four-year cycle. And, and that's what's so interesting for me about this cycle, how, how we got it wrong for three years. And then all of a sudden, the, the All Blacks now look as though they could potentially win a World Cup, dare I say. But it's almost in reverse of what we've done in the past. You know, we normally had a bit of a clean out and then built, you know, that three to four years to, to culminate with, you know, the 33 players being named. So, you know, I, it's the pinnacle of your career now to win a to win a World Cup. It's how how you're judged on your success at World Cups, and it's the same with coaches. The great coaches have won World Cups. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, as we talked about at the top, try and sum up maybe how you do win a World Cup or how you guys won it. You've mentioned a few things over the course of the half hour or so of no injuries and getting all the best players together and taking one game at a time, but. Can you put your finger on maybe a couple of key elements you think that may be true for yours and all World Cup wins? Yeah, you, well, injuries, injuries is, you know, it's always going to be a, a, a hindrance. But, you know, the preparation is keen, the planning, 
the planning, where you're going, who you're playing against, the development of players in that, in that cycle, making sure you have players that are really, really, really hungry to win a World Cup. And that's where you have issues in terms of, you know, players. I played in three World Cups and you've got to make sure that the players that are playing in two or three World Cups, if they're still young enough and good enough and all those things, they've still got that burning desire to win the World Cup because you need, you know, now you need 33, 33 dedicated players that, that have a burning desire to be the best in the world and, and take everything else out of your life, but winning that World Cup and you've got 33 players doing that. Um, it's pretty hard to beat. You need a good nine, good ten. You know, the best teams in the world that have won World Cups have a, have a great ten to drive the game and, and you need a good leader. You need a good leader to make sure that everything is in place. Um, to win and and then if that's not enough you also need a very good coaching team because uh, I say it again the best teams the teams that win World Cups have great great captains great tens and they also have good coaches yeah well there you go there's the blueprint everyone we're going to try and pick through more over that's the not course much, of is it? no exactly yeah <laughs> but but Sean Fitzpatrick look absolute pleasure to rip through 1987 with you um all the best for you guys and enjoy the tournament that's coming in France. Thank you very much. Looking, I can't wait. It's going to be a, a fabulous World Cup and hopefully, uh, hopefully the All Blacks will get through. You've been listening to a Ruck podcast special, How to Win the World Cup. Like and subscribe, spread the word and follow the Times on social media at Timesport. And we'll have another episode for you soon. This podcast was produced by Alfie Reynolds. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium.